Welcome to Healthy Dialogue, the podcast of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Here's your host, ACHB CEO, Cece Connolly. Every presidential election, we seem to throw around phrases like the most important of our lifetimes and historic with lots of exclamation points. And I remember from all of my reporting days, Maybe it was a way to get a good headline or motivate the electorate or just to shine a spotlight on some specific issue or gym up donations. Yeah, most of the time it's hyperbole. But what if this year it's not hyperbole? Maybe it really is the most significant election of our lifetimes, not just because we've got two very different candidates, but because of all the things orbiting the number one issue on voters' minds, healthcare. We now have over 8 million Americans who have tested positive for the novel coronavirus, over 210,000 dead and counting. Consumers who are using the healthcare system in very different ways than they did back in February. And many of them, unfortunately, are just not using it at all. We've got a contentious battle surrounding the Supreme Court, which will entertain the idea of dismantling the Affordable Care Act just seven days after we go to the polls. And downhill from that court case, very real concerns about health coverage for over 20 million Americans, protection for tens of millions more with pre-existing conditions. Now, I've never been prone to hyperbole. I'm just the facts kind of girl. But wow, for those of us who work in the healthcare space, there is a ton on the line in this election and beyond. Not kidding serious stuff here. So if we fast forward to January 20th, 2021, when the House, Senate, and President have all presumably been sworn in, what ideas might be dominating the healthcare agenda? Will Congress find itself scrambling to secure the ACA? Will there be a COVID vaccine? Who will get it? Will there be real conversations about some kind of public option or affordability? Those are just some of the issues we're going to dive into in this special election preview of Healthy Dialogue. Today, as we near the finish line of election 2020, And also season one of Healthy Dialogue, we're going to go straight at that intersection of politics and policy. Joining us are Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, an esteemed bioethicist, oncologist, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and architect of the Affordable Care Act. I'm also pleased to introduce one of our many terrific team members at ACHP, Matt Tobias, who has had the unenviable task of tracking and preparing for these elections and the aftermath.
Well, Matt Tobias, it's great to have a socially distant, in-person, healthy dialogue conversation. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Cece. You have been spending much of the past several months really studying these two presidential candidates, their records and their policy proposals with respect to health care. We are down to the wire here and hoping that you can help us make sense of it all. So let's start with, it sure seems as if these two candidates have awfully different healthcare platforms. Is that the case? And, and how and where do they sort of break down? Yes, that is a case. And let's use the Affordable Care Act as our jumping off point to highlight some of those differences. So at a very top level, Biden, of course, wants to build on the Affordable Care Act. This was legislation that he was very active, actively involved with and passing it when he was vice president in the Obama administration. He sees the ACA as the vehicle for much of his larger healthcare platform. So the increasing access to care, increasing subsidies, which gets to the affordability question, and of course, to the Medicaid expansion piece of the ACA as well. Trump conversely wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act and start sort of anew with a policy agenda that includes some old Republican staples and some non-traditional Republican staples as well. Trump has been talking about repeal and replace for four plus years now. We haven't seen that to date, but the repeal effort is quite robust at this very moment. So this is correct. And as you know, he's taking a big swing at replace or at least repeal in the past. The replacement side is still very much murky at this point. We do know that he favors more of a state-based approach when it comes to health care reform. You will see this in his discussions and his policy proposals around Medicaid, You know, perhaps turning that program into a block grant. That was sort of one of the original pieces. We've seen some tilting towards that with the most recent decision in Georgia for their Medicaid plans that were just approved. That's right. Georgia had a Medicaid waiver. That's correct. And and under that waiver, the state has more leeway, more flexibility to tailor the program in a way that the governor sees fit. That includes work requirements. It also includes a component that might have folks paying a premium who are on Medicaid. And I think this is the general direction that a Trump administration would like to go in, where you're giving the reins to the state and not necessarily the checkbook to the state, but certainly the reins to it. Good point. Now, so it's clear they have some very different policy perspectives on healthcare, but a couple of areas where maybe they're more similar than people might realize. Shockingly, there is some overlapping <laughs> between these two campaigns. Some of it, you can at least say they're they're at least in the ballpark on prescription drug pricing. They take a couple of different paths. I think Biden has come out in favor of negotiation and Medicare for prescription drug prices. So the Trump administration has taken their cues mostly from the overseas pricing market and, and seeing how other countries, what they pay for prescription drugs and taking that average and basing a payment here in the U.S. on that. But they are at least in that same ballpark, in that same world when it comes to drug pricing. They are also aligned on surprise medical bills, which is an issue that both campaigns have taken to heart as well. And I think just broadly, there is this movement towards value-based care that we talk a lot about. And I think the campaigns are aligned on that as well as a lot of the provisions around telehealth. 
And so please fast forward to January, fast forward to 2021. What sort of healthcare ideas do you think, Matt, would be dominating the healthcare agenda? Let's start with if it's a second Trump term. So regardless of who comes in in January, whether it's Trump or Biden, either one of them will have to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's not going away. Unfortunately, that's a sad fact, but that's going to be here and with us through January and very likely further on. So with Trump, there is still going to be the pressure to deal with a broader package, a COVID relief package. Now, depending on the dynamics of Congress, I don't think this is going to get any better for him in that regard. You know, a lot depends on what the breakdown is going to be when the members of Congress come back in January to see what the makeup is going to look like. But they have struggled to get a large relief package together and through Congress as is. Likewise, with Biden, again, largely depending on the congressional dynamics and how that comes together, If you do see majorities that break in the president's party's way, so if you see a Biden administration with a Democrat majority in the Senate, a Democrat majority in the House, I think that gets you a little bit closer to a broader deal on health care, especially primarily around COVID-19 and and mitigating the impacts of the uh, pandemic. Well, and in fact, Matt, it seems to me that the work on the pandemic will also spill into the economy. It certainly has to date as we've lost, you know, millions of people have lost jobs. Often when you lose a job, you lose health insurance coverage. So it seems to me that all gets tied up into our 2021 experience. Yeah, without a doubt. And and even before 2021, as voters go to the polls, we see a lot of the data around how important they view healthcare and the economy. So I think we'll have a statement on election day about where the electorate sees the candidates and, and how they might react and treat healthcare as well as the economy. They're so embedded that you can't have one discussion without having a discussion about the other. And I think whatever package forms in terms of a relief package, it's going to have to take both of those bites of the apple. Well, Matt Tobias, we are lucky to have you on Healthy Dialogue today and at ACHP. Thanks so much. Thanks, Cece. And we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Cityus Tech is a specialty provider of healthcare technology services and solutions with a strong presence across the globe. With more than a decade of experience, Cityus Tech is uniquely positioned to help health plans achieve seamless integration, drive scalability, and enable sustainable convergence. Cityus Tech offers a suite of services and platforms that enable provider-aligned health plans to accelerate innovation in key areas, including interoperability, care management, member experience, digital health, operational analytics, and regulatory reporting. Learn more at CityusTech.com. Well, we are going to have a little bit of fun today on Healthy Dialogue with our guest, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. Zeke, welcome to Healthy Dialogue. Uh, Nice to hear from you, Cece. Good to be here. 
We are, of course, in the midst of a global pandemic, one that has affected tens of millions all over the world, including President Trump. What would you say is the future of healthcare in this country post-election day? Well, I guess uh, 538 gives Vice President Biden a 87% chance of winning. So let's assume it's a Biden administration. And then the big question is, is it going to be a Biden administration with a Democratic Senate? If you have that combination, House going Democratic, Senate going Democratic, and a Democratic president, I think what you're going to have is a per force, a just an intense focus on COVID and trying to remedy COVID. And a large part of the issue is what fits in under that rubric that's healthcare reformish. I think there are going to be some coverage issues and it depends on how big the new democratic administration wants to go on healthcare. My own view is, is you can't go small, but on the other hand, you got a lot of priorities that they want to get through. And so how, you know, how much do you want to devote to the healthcare issue, I think is a major strategic choice. Mm. I want to follow up on that because that's the voice of experience talking right there, I know. But full disclosure, Zeke, you are a Biden supporter, of course. Yes. Okay. Not paid by the not paid by the campaign and no official title in the campaign, but I am a Biden supporter. Terrific. And so let's start with the pandemic. I think that there is broad agreement that the current Trump administration has struggled to manage the COVID-19 pandemic. How, you know, you are a physician, you have served in government and policy circles as well. What do we need to do relating to the pandemic for starters? You really need a, a strong coordination function and management function, as you put it, that starts in the White House. And the main reason is you really have to marshal lots of different resources, government at federal, state, and local level, private industry to produce and distribute various items from vaccines to therapeutics to PPE to testing equipment. They have to work together. You need public communication, and that has to come centrally to be led by the government. You need advice and guidance that would normally come out of the CDC to start coming out in the insufficient detail. So there's many, many things, and all of that has to be coordinated. And the only place I can coordinate it across the departments, across the agencies between government and private sector is the White House. So that's going to be job one, two, and three, I do believe for the first nine months. It's not going to be the only thing they do, but it is going to be the biggest challenge. They have to prove that they're not the Trump administration and that they can actually manage. And I think they can. And do they also have to come in, assuming that it is a Biden administration, how big of a deal is trust in public health? How big of a challenge is that? Oh, it's a huge challenge. And I think you need communication. You need to depoliticize the CDC and to have the scientists there who would normally issue guidance and, and data and all of that uh, come to the fore. And I think they will. I have had the privilege of briefing Vice President Biden on vaccines. And he's a man who likes to get practical into the details. But he's also a man who understands he's not the scientist. He's not the public health expert. He can ask smart questions, but those are other people who have the expertise and they need to lead. His best job is to make that possible. And I, I think he totally gets that. And 
that'll be a huge, huge breath of fresh air to the people in the CDC, in the FDA, at the NIH, and it's critical. You mentioned, again, if we are heading into a Biden administration, COVID-19 dominates clearly the agenda, the healthcare agenda. There may be a question around size and what else you can put into that healthcare agenda. What are some of the options and how would you maybe prioritize that health agenda? Well, if you're talking about a health agenda, you've got a coverage side to it. And, you know, we're every year under President Trump, we've lost people to uninsurance. So we have more and more uninsured people. We also know that we don't have a path to universal coverage because of the 12 states that refuse to expand Medicaid. And so we're going to have to break that conundrum. It's critical. And we have to get to a situation where we can have universal coverage. And the fastest way to that is through auto enrollment. And that will require some changes. You know, my preference, which I articulated with my brother Ram was, you know, we've got to federalize Medicaid already, make it one coherent program across the country. I think there's a good argument to be said, all right, let's federalize Medicaid and let's merge it with the exchange and maybe merge it with Medicare Advantage to create this very large exchange. One of the advantages of that is you can be sure that there will be an insurance company in every single county, more than one, because of the Medicare Advantage, the exchanges, and the big Medicaid population. And that, I think, creates lots of leverage and it reduces the risk on the insurance company side. There are many advantages to it. Then there's the affordability angle. And I think, you know, if you had asked me to do this podcast in December 2019, you know, it would have been all about affordability. You know, the inevitable drug price regulation we're going to have, the inevitable focus on alternative payment model. You know, I think that takes stuff takes a backseat and it has to be done. And I think there are many things that can be done without legislation. Some things will require legislation, but I think it the amount of attention on that is going to be less. You and I have talked about this before, and we at the Alliance of Community Health Plans are, are big proponents of value in healthcare, value-based purchasing, even moving in the direction of capitation. I think we can agree the ACA started with some baby steps in that direction, but it's slowed. Can we pick the pace back up again? Absolutely. I think you're right. It, it's gone in fits and starts just after passage of the ACA. There was sort of a focus on ACOs, but not much else. And to tell you the truth, the, the early leaders of CMMI did not use their resources and the powers they had very well. Secretary Burwell said, we're going to move to alternative payment models. And, and here was the timeline. And she said that in 2015. And then we got a big burst of value-based payment. And I agree with you. Over the last few years, we haven't been very aggressive about it. And I do think we can come back and be aggressive about it. My own view would be that CMMI has to run some very large national mandatory trials with alternative payment. So we finally know does the bundle work or not work? Does the capitation for primary care and some specialists work or not work? There's a law permitting us to switch. And so I do think that's the kind of thing that needs to be undertaken. We don't need a profusion of voluntary alternative payment models. We need a few large, as I said, nationwide mandatory alternative payment models that are very likely to succeed. And when they succeed, make a big difference in bending the cost curve. Well, you mentioned that the HHS secretary does have that authority. If they see something that works, they could say, go ahead, we're switching. But 
it hasn't happened. So, you know, you and I are creatures of Washington, for better or worse. But explain to our Healthy Dialogue listeners out there why we haven't seen a secretary, Democrat or Republican, grab that authority and run with it. Well, the authority, <laughs> so the authority came with some restrictions. And part of those restrictions are that the office of the actuary has to confirm that whatever the change is, it either saves money without decreasing quality or improves quality without costing more. And, you know, the office of the actuary is very, very hesitant. And when you run experiments with voluntary groups, there's always the question of, is it atypical? And if we squeeze it down here and we did save money here, is it popping up somewhere else? So one of the issues with bundle payments for lower extremity joints in the original demonstration project is, oh, yeah, we did save money, but did that mean that more were done? And so net, net, we actually increased total spending. You know, most of the data, and, and I've been part of generating this data, so I'm not completely objective here. Most of the data, I believe, suggests, no, it did not increase volume. It shifted volume around between hospitals, but that's a very complex thing to calculate when you've got voluntary, not mandatory demonstration projects. And so the Office of the Actuary has been hesitant, and being hesitant has meant that the secretary hasn't gone full force. I will just note, you know, someone I know had a head MRI because of a suspected concussion. The MRI was charged at $6,000. That's an absurd amount of money. I mean, you could probably get it for 150, 200 bucks in many countries, Taiwan, Japan, we really need to rebase our fee structure. That will also make a big difference. Let me be devil's advocate though here. Why are you saying redo or rebase fee for service? Can't we just get rid of it? We can't get rid of it overnight. And remember our bundle payments, our PCP capitation payments, they're all still based upon the a groundwork of the fee for service system. And we are gonna need those claims Still, not for billing, but for knowing what services are rendered until we get a different system for knowing what services are rendered. So I I don't think we can completely throw it out. And, And like you, the incredulity in your voice mirrors mine, which is, you know, I'd like to just throw it out. But I don't think until we have a better infrastructure for knowing what's done, that's going to happen. Okay, fair enough. Glad path, maybe. One week after Election Day, the Supreme Court eight or nine of them, will hear a major case challenging the Affordable Care Act. And you, of course, were very instrumental in developing, passing, and and implementing the ACA. What do you see as the future of that law? And do you believe that it is in serious enough jeopardy that Congress should be taking up some elements of it? First of all, it should be noted here that no reputable legal scholar, and I mean no reputable legal scholar, thinks this case has any merit. It's ridiculous. The idea that if you take out the mandate or zero it out as has been done through the tax reform, that the whole ACA falls down. There's no severability as the technical constitutional language has it. That is a ridiculous argument. For one thing, we haven't had a mandate with a penalty. And guess what? 
the whole system hasn't fallen down. The whole system works and people still want health insurance and still use the exchanges and get subsidies and enroll in Medicaid. So the premise of the case is just false. Republicans and the president are saying, oh, we care about pre-existing conditions, and they have absolutely no plan to protect pre-existing conditions, and it would create havoc and chaos, and who knows what would happen to the healthcare system. I, I believe if the Supreme Court rules that it's overturned, they're going to say, oh, well, it shouldn't be implemented for a few years to give the system chance to actually do something. You know, that that tells you that it, it would be very dangerous if it went that way. I guess it's hard to see, you know, Congress, the Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate doesn't seem at all inclined to do anything intelligent on this. And so I'm not sure that we can get anything in between. If the Democrats take over, you know, the House, the Senate, and the White House, there are some fixes to neutralize that case, I think that can be done. Let me close on a forward-looking note for you, which is if, as you predicted at this start from 538, that Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, and you've probably had the chance to do this privately, but here on Healthy Dialogue, what would be a piece of advice for an incoming president under these challenging circumstances of a global pandemic, clearly economic woes, lots of other challenges in our healthcare system. What's your guiding piece of advice? Component number one is you can't get the economy going. You can't really get back to normal until we control COVID. And so you do have to focus on controlling COVID. Piece number two was implicit in what I had said earlier, and I'll just make it explicit. You have to really prioritize what you want to do. You know, I'm a non-professional historian. I, I read a lot of histories. I spent a lot of time on Johnson and looking at, he won this landslide victory in 1964. And then in 1965, was able to do the Great Society. Well, what was the Great Society in the end? In This master of the legislative process was able to achieve lots of bills, but four major bills in the year that constituted the Great Society. That was it. Four major bills, Medicare and Medicaid, the Voting Rights Act of 65, higher education and immigration. I mean, not higher education, primary and secondary education bill, federal assistance and immigration. That wasn't all. There are many other things that went into the Great Society, but it was four major bills. That's the limit of what a person who controls so much and you know really knows how to use the legislative process can get done. So you're going to have maybe two pieces of legislation in the first year of a Biden administration that are big. You got to pick them really, really well to really advance your major goals. And and so I think that's really focus on what you're going to pass because you're not going to have multiple bites at the apple here. I think they already know this, but that, that's something for the public to really understand. Agreed. It has been great fun, as I expected, and I hope we get you back on Healthy Dialogue. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, thank you. Great, Cece. Lovely to be here. And we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Rising costs, new technology, and higher consumer expectations are forcing the healthcare industry to evolve toward a value-based, patient-focused system. Change Healthcare Consulting helps clients adapt to this new landscape. Their reality-based consulting services help healthcare organizations innovate, solve problems, and optimize business performance. Ranked by KLAS as the number one payer consultancy, 
Change Healthcare is a recognized industry leader. Whether you're working to become compliant with the new interoperability and patient access rule, entering Medicare Advantage for the first time, or engaging on an enterprise system implementation, Change can help. For more information, go to changehealthcare.com or simply Google Change Healthcare Consulting. Before we go any further, CC needs a minute. For those of you who have followed Healthy Dialogue through our inaugural season, first, thanks. And second, you also know this is CC Needs a Minute time when I get to jump on my little soapbox every week. It's kind of my brief chance to toss aside the niceties and just rant a little. Yeah, true confession. It's been kind of fun. Sorry, folks. No rant today. Instead, just a simple question. Why should you care? Why should you care who gets elected to Congress or the White House next week? Why should you care enough to have a say in it? Why should you care with enough passion that you refuse to be one of those 50% of eligible Americans who historically don't even bother to vote? And I actually mean this question literally. We all have our reasons, our own answers. It's personal. I get it. But it's so easy to get caught up in headlines and scandals and conspiracy theories and news cycles, that we don't always take the time for a little reflection. We don't ask ourselves what we care about. And too often, we don't ride that thing all the way to the polls. You've heard eight episodes now of Healthy Dialogue, full of healthcare-related topics that we care about. And all of us involved in this podcast have other topics we care about too. But as we sit here on the eve of what may actually be the most important election of our lifetimes, I encourage you, mm, no, scratch that. I beg you to ask yourself that one simple question. What do I care about? Dig deep. Learn the names on your ballot who care about the same things as you. Participate. Be heard. My former employer, the Washington Post, says democracy dies in darkness. So find your light. And we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Support for Healthy Dialogue comes from New Century Health. New Century Health is the leading value-based specialty management company with a deep focus on improving quality and lowering costs for oncology and cardiology care. New Century Health's evidence-based approach delivers savings for health plans through deep physician engagement and improved patient outcomes, all under a value-based construct that ensures patients receive the highest quality, most affordable care. Learn more at newcenturyhealth.com.
wow, it's hard to believe that this election preview marks the end of our podcast series for now. But my hope is that we can continue our healthy dialogue together indefinitely. If you haven't yet, I hope you'll take a moment to find me on Twitter so we can connect with each other. Also, please follow ACHP at underscore ACHP on Twitter. On behalf of all of us involved in the making of Healthy Dialogue, thank you so much for coming along for the ride. My hope is that you learned a little, got some great ideas, and maybe started thinking about healthcare issues in different ways. For the Alliance of Community Health Plans and the Healthy Dialogue podcast, I'm Cece Connolly, signing off. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Healthy Dialogue. Learn more about the Alliance of Community Health Plans at ECHP.org and click the Add to Contacts button to connect directly with our team. We hope you'll also find us on Twitter at underscore ACHP and on LinkedIn. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews help new listeners find our podcast and hopefully spur more healthy dialogue out there.